0: All right, so the scripture reading comes from Matthew 18, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times can my brother sin against me and I have to forgive him? Seven times? No, not seven times, Jesus answered, but 70 times seven, because the kingdom of heaven is like a king who decides to check on his servants' accounts. Mm. He had just begun to do so when one of them was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He did not have enough to pay the debt, so the master ordered him to be sold as a slave, with his wife, children, and all that he had had, in order to pay the debt. The servant fell down on his knees before the, the master. "Be patient with me," he begged, "and I will pay you everything." Then the master felt sorry for him, so he forgave him the, the debt and or, and let him go. The man went out and met with his fellow servant, who owed him a few dollars. He grabbed him and started choking him. "Pay me back what you owe me," he said. His fellow servant fell down and begged him, "Be patient with me, and I will pay you back." But he would not. Instead, he had him thrown into jail until he should pay back the debt. When the other servants heard, uh, when the other servants saw what had happened. They were very upset and went to the master and told him everything. So the master called the servants in. You worthless slave, he said. I forgave you the whole amount you owed me just because you asked me to. You should have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you. Then the master was very angry and sent the servant to jail to be punished until he paid back the whole amount. And Jesus concluded, This is how my Father in heaven will treat you if you do not forgive your brother, every one of you, from your heart.
1: You know, I think one of the greatest challenges that you and I face as people and that we just face as the human race, actually, is the very simple task of simply getting along. It's being able to, to live in harmony with each other. It uh, starts as soon as you just bring two people together. Uh, whether those two people are coming together in a marriage relationship or whether they're two people that have to work together in the workplace or whether they're simply two roommates that are going to college. As soon as you get two people in the room together, there's going to be times that there are some relational challenges that you're going to have to live or work through. Same thing happens in families. In fact, then it gets more complicated in families because you have a lot more dynamic going on. You've got the dynamic of the spouses in relationship with each other. You've got the dynamic of them as parents with their children. You've got the dynamic of the children with the parents. And you've got the dynamic of the children with each other as siblings. That's a lot of stuff going on. And from time to time, there are some relational challenges in the family that need to be worked through. Over the last decade or two, the United States is discovering that developing any kind of national unity and harmony is becoming more and more difficult. And then, as you look at the conflicts that are currently taking place around the globe, it's become clear that nation existing in harmony with other nations is going to be on a challenge. It's impossible. Now, as believers, you and I understand that the challenge of getting along and the challenge of living in harmony in any of those situations comes from the fact that there's sin. Sin is a part of our lives. Sin affects our lives, and sin affects our relationship with each other. Once sin entered the human experience in Genesis chapter 3, as a matter of fact, relationships were one of the first casualties. You have Adam and Eve... Immediately, after the sin and being confronted with God, they enter into the blame game and say no," and point fingers at each other and say, "No, they're responsible for this act of disobedience that's brought on all of this consequence." And God even says as a part of the, the curse, and as he's talking about the future, that there's going to be now this tension that will exist between Adam and Eve that was not there before, because there's now selfishness that's a result of the sin that's been brought into. human experience the next generation Cain and Abel entered into a battle a sibling rivalry that resulted in the first murder and even as we come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and we all gather together as believers in Christ there are times when there are challenges for us to be able to get along and live in harmony together as a church family It's a reality that was part of the first group of devoted Jesus followers, those men that we know as the Twelve Apostles. Twelve Apostles were this incredibly diverse group of men who never would have gotten together under any other circumstance except for their mutual relationship with Jesus. You've got blue-collar fishermen who are a bit rough around the edges and just tell you what they think. You've got a tax collector who had been a collaborator with the hated Romans. You have got a former zealot, and the zealots were this group of people that thought the only way to get out from underneath the Roman dominion was through violence. And then you had a couple of educated men from wealthy, influential families. And this diversity often led to moments of tension It led to moments of rivalry as they jockey with each other for influence and for position even within the twelve they learn the truth of the little poem that goes to live above with saints we love will certainly be glory to live here below with the saints we know well that's another story And it was one of these moments of sibling rivalry amongst the twelve that actually sets the context for today's parable that Elijah read for us. And it starts in the beginning of Matthew 18 in verse 1. It says, at that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What they're asking is, which one of us is better than the others? Which one of us will get the highest position in the kingdom, Jesus? After you establish it, which one of us will be above the eleven, the other eleven, in a position of authority, in a position that is just under you, and everybody else is under us? And Jesus takes the opportunity for what becomes an extended answer that covers all of Matthew eighteen. And he's teaching the apostles, and through his word, he's teaching us the answer to that question. How do we get along and live in harmony with each other as fellow believers? You see, we too, as a church family, are a group of Jesus followers who bring a variety of things into the room. Very diverse. We too have different backgrounds and experiences that have formed us for who we are. We come from different generations. We have different spiritual backgrounds. We have had our own unique spiritual journey. We have different levels of spiritual maturity. And so Jesus wants to teach us with all of this diversity, how do we take that diversity and harmonize? How do we take that diversity and live in unity? How do we take that diversity and simply get along and as i mentioned all of matthew 18 records jesus responding to this question of the disciples in verse 1 this is one single teaching session between jesus and his closest disciples with a focus on the 12 and we don't have time to study the whole chapter but as you walk through, there is these different, the different parts of the teaching that Jesus goes from just one to the next to the next. He starts by saying, stop trying to assert yourself and be humble towards each other. Stop trying to assert yourself and, and be humble towards each other because all of us are simply God's children and we all came into the family through the same childlike, simple faith. And so there is no hierarchy. There's one father, the rest of us are children, and so live with humility towards each other. Then he goes on, he says, Stop competing against each other for position and lovingly encourage each other to grow in your relationship with the Father and do it together. Stop competing. And go to encouragement. And we encourage each other to just be walking with Jesus and growing in our relationship with the Lord and enjoying the fact that we get to do it together. So be humble. Be encouraging. Then he moves on to a parable that tells the story about the fact that God the Father wants all of his children to stay close to him and each other. And so if one of us wanders off, if we kind of take a pathway of sin or we disengage with God or we disengage with the church, then God comes after us like a loving shepherd after a lost sheep, but with the intention of reaching out and putting his hands around us and drawing us back in. And then he moves on and he talks about what happens when someone within the body of Christ, within the church family, sins against God and sins against us. When someone does something that is hurtful, somebody does something that is mistreating us, it is something that goes against Scripture and how they're supposed to be relating with us and it leaves this wound. What do you do with that? And he says do not retaliate and you do not write them off but you confront them with truth and love not to prove a point and not to get back but to restore. To restore that that offender in the relationship with God and then the relationship with you. And that will include forgiving them. You will need to forgive the offender the same way that God has forgiven them. Once they repent. Now, you have to understand the reason I kind of walked through that. You have to, you know, remember these 12 just asked Jesus one really simple question. (laughs) Which one of us is better than the others? And Jesus turns on the fire hose. And he just hits them with truth, truth, truth. No, be humble. No, be encouraging. Understand if somebody does sin against you, my desire is restoration. Restoration. And so Peter just can't take much anymore of this. (laughs) And so then we we get to our passage this morning in verse 21. It says that Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? It's really kind of funny because what what Peter's asking Jesus is, please tell me there's a limit to this. Please tell me that I don't have to forgive somebody if they repeatedly, over time, they keep doing stuff that they have to come back and apologize for and seek forgiveness for, and I have to forgive. And they do it again, and I forgive, and they do it again. There's got to be a limit, right, Jesus? And so in the Jewish tradition of the time, they, the rabbis taught that you had to forgive somebody for offending you three times. If they did it a fourth time, you could write them off. You could write them off. And so Peter feels good. He, overdub- he more than doubles that. I'll go beyond the three. I'll give you seven. And then Jesus makes the main point of the parable, and then we'll get into the parable. In verse 22, he says, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times, the NIV says. It can also be translated 70 times seven, but the number doesn't matter because the point is this. There's no limit. There's no limit. The point Jesus says is that we are to show each other the mercy and forgiveness just like God shows us mercy and forgiveness. And we do it unconditionally and we do it without limit. And then he tells this parable to explain why. Why are we called to do this? Because it sure goes against human nature. And so Jesus tells this parable. And it, and it unfolds in three scenes. It unfolds in three scenes. The first scene is there's a tremendous debt that is owed and is mercifully forgiven. Picking up the story in verse 23, it says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold, which is 10,000 talents, it's simply a talent was a certain weight of gold that was a certain value that was used. So there's 10,000 of these, and was brought to him. since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. The story opens with a king, actually. And he's, he's the king of a large, expansive kingdom, apparently. And these servants are actually provincial officials. They're governors. They have responsibility of providing leadership over specific sections of this king's kingdom. And one of the responsibilities they have is to collect taxes. And so the time comes when it's settling accounts. But It's simply this. It was time for all of these governors to come in and audit the books and make sure they balance. Did the taxes owed equal the taxes received and the taxes turned into the king's treasury? So this is an audit. This guy comes and he's got to, he had to be Way up there. He had to be a governor above governors because he, uh, he owes 10,000 talents. That's hundreds of millions of dollars. Now, to put it into context, the annual tax burden for the entire nation of Israel in the first century to Rome was 800. This guy owes 10,000. And he's not able to pay. Perhaps he had neglected his responsibilities. Perhaps he was an embezzler. We don't know. Jesus doesn't tell us. But he's not able to pay. So the king says, okay, you and your entire family will be sold into slavery and will liquidate any assets you have and it will go towards your debt. That was the common practice of the day. If you, the servant knew that would be the consequence when he took this high-level job, that if he failed at this job, he would lose his freedom. I think Jesus is telling the story like this in part because he wants to give a little dig to the apostles' question about high position. You want to learn about a high position? Let me tell you about a guy in a high position. <laughs> but he also, I think more importantly, wants to make sure they identify with this character. Jesus is describing the disciples. The servant begs for mercy. Now, there's no way he can repay the debt, and he knows it. He's not stupid. But it's actually a cry for mercy that the king will be satisfied with some little tiny partial repayment over time. What he's really saying is, hey, garnish my wages for life and call it good. But the king goes beyond that and he shows mercy and forgiveness and wipes out the entire debt. Sets the servant free. Nothing owed. Notice that means the king took the loss himself. This money came out of his pocket. The point of Jesus in here is very simple and clear and I'm sure the disciples were getting it. Through his death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has forgiven our stead of sin. The punishment that you and I were destined to have, that we would be inflicted with for entire eternity, has been suffered instead by Jesus on the cross. God took our sin, he laid that sin on Jesus, and then he put him in hell for three hours to pay the penalty. You and I can thank God that he did that because when Jesus said, it is finished, that word means paid in full. At the end of that three hours, every sin was paid for. Our debt was immeasurable. We could not possibly pay it. And so Jesus paid it for us. And so then we go to scene two, and we see an insignificant debt is harshly demanded. An insignificant debt is harshly demanded. He goes on in verse 28, and he says, But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused and said he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. This unmerciful servant demands repayment from a fellow servant and he goes looking for this guy. He wants his money. He physically threatens and abuses the man because I want my money now. And this guy owes him a hundred silver coins. This is this is the proportion here. If the unmerciful servant owed one million dollars, this guy owed him ten bucks. A million to ten. <laughs> and the fellow servant begs for the same mercy that the unmerciful servant had, almost word for word. But unlike the king. This unmerciful servant refuses, and the man is cast into prison. The point of Jesus, again, it's clear. You see, when you compare all that God has forgiven us, any offense that another believer can do to us is minuscule. It's small in comparison to what we've been forgiven by God. Pennies on the dollar. And so we move to scene three, and the king disciplines the unmerciful servant. In verse 31, it says that when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. He calls this guy, you wicked servant. Because what this man had done, his refusal to forgive the debt of his fellow servant, was wicked. Which is to say, he was sinful. The debt... The failure, rather, to forgive a fellow brother or sister in Christ is an act of disobedience to the Lord. And it's a sin. He says, shouldn't you have had mercy? Shouldn't you have given your fellow servant the same mercy that I gave to you? And then he turns him over, and that word torment is not so much torture, it's the idea of punishment. It's the idea of disciplining. Because the goal of the king is not punishment, it's repentance. You see, the king's not looking for this unmerciful servant to repay the money. What he owes is forgiveness. He wants this unmerciful set servant to repent of his hard heart and forgive his fellow servant the debt and release him from jail. See, this unmerciful servant doesn't owe that other, his fellow servant anything, but he owes the king. He owes the king the willingness to forgive with the same mercy that the king has shown him. That's what he owes the king. And his failure to do that didn't only dishonor himself, but it dishonored the king himself. And so the king puts him in a situation where he's under discipline for the purpose of repentance so that he will forgive his fellow servant and have him released from jail. And then Jesus moves to the main point in verse 35. He says, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. You see... We are to show each other mercy and forgiveness like God has shown us mercy and forgiveness unconditionally and without limit. How many times? As many times as it takes. How many times? Every time. And it comes from the heart. This is a forgiveness that truly lets go of feelings like resentment for bitterness. This is forgiveness that lets go of any desire for revenge or retribution. It lets go of any demand that that person be punished. It lets go of any demand that says, I'm not going to forgive you until you fill in the blank. And failure to forgive from the heart is a sin, and so therefore God will bring his hand of loving discipline on us. And so we come to the point of repenting and extending the forgiveness to that person who's offended us with the same forgiveness that God gave us through Christ. So let's tie some of this together. Let's start by making sure we understand the word forgiveness. Probably a good place to start. The biblical word that's in, in, in the New Testament means to let something go or to put something aside, or to release someone from a debt. To let go, to put aside, or to release somebody from a debt. It means that you do not hold the sin against them. And that we remove the offense as a barrier between us. And the Bible has some instructions, other instructions that tie into the parable here on forgiveness. First of all, forgiveness is an expression of love that does not keep a record. It's an expression of love that does not keep a record. In that great um, section of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 13 where Paul describes biblical love, he says... Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Keeps no record of wrongs. Have you ever done this? Have you ever thought about something that somebody did to you that was just, you know, hurtful or infuriated you and it happened 10 years ago and something triggers the memory and the next thing you know... It's 10 years, and you're having the same reaction. That's because you kept a record. And love wipes the record clean. Bible also says that the basis of forgiveness is how we've been forgiven. The basis of forgiveness is how we've been forgiven, and of course forgiven by God. Paul says in Colossians 3, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave us. And then we leave any discipline or consequence that that person receives to God. We leave that to God. Paul writes in Romans 12, Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. That's a phrase that means you will bring conviction. God will use your actions to bring conviction to that person. And then he goes on and says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Failure to forgive means we now are on the same level as the offender. Don't do that. And there's positive results that happen as we extend forgiveness to each other. And and here's one, and don't miss this. Forgiveness sets us free. Forgiveness sets us free. Forgiveness done biblically sets us free from the hurt. It will set us free from the anger. It'll set us free from bitterness. The person who receives, forgi- receives freedom when you forgive an offender is not the offender, it's you. The offender is still in the hands of God until they repent. You're free. You're free of the effect the offense had on you. The example of Jesus doing this on the cross where it says in Luke 23 that two other men, both criminals, were also led out with them to be executed. And when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there Along with the criminals, one on his right and one other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. A few months later, maybe a year later, Stephen in Acts chapter six or seven becomes the first person who dies for his faith. He's martyred. And in the end of Acts 7, it says that while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Notice that in both of these examples, forgiveness forgiveness comes before repentance. Forgiveness comes before repentance. And forgiveness then becomes the first step in healing us from the hurt that's been inflicted. But it's not the last step. It's the first. Forgiveness can take place in a moment by a decision that we make, but healing takes place over time by the grace of God. Healing takes place over time by the grace of God. But forgiveness is the first step to receiving that grace. We receive that healing from God, and this is so important. I've done this. I think you may, you've you done it. I thought, you know what? I'll be okay as soon as that person apologizes. I'll be okay as soon as that person makes it right. Well, now you're trusting the offender to give you healing. Good luck. <laughs> the healing comes from God. The healing comes from God's mercy. The healing comes from God's grace. And it begins as we let it go. And then in prayer we say, God, I need grace to continue to forgive and I need mercy to heal. I need grace to be forgive. I need mercy to heal. And you pray that as often as you need to pray it for as long as you need to pray it until you realize one day healing has taken place. And it came from God. Prayer over time, equals healing. And then forgiveness done in this way prepares us for the next step, which is forgiveness opens the door for restoration now. Forgiveness does not equal restoration in the relationship. That takes us back to what Jesus described in Matthew 18, 15 to 20, which we again, we don't have time today, but there's a process you go through. With the goal of repentance and restoration in the offender's relationship with God and with you. A number of years ago now at Grace Church, where we were uh, in, in normal, we had a gentleman that came, and I'm just going to call him Bill, it wasn't his real name, and Bill was an auto mechanic. Some of the people in the church began to take their business to him, and there was a man by the name of Tom who had, was refurbishing a car, and he needed a new engine, and so he ordered that engine through Bill. Bill took the money, and six months later, there's no engine. And he refused to resolve it, and he refused to give the money back. Now, Tom felt, because of 1 Corinthians 7, that it was wrong for him to take Bill to civil court. And so we said he appealed to the elders of the church. And so we got involved. The pastor and Tom went to talk to Bill, and nothing happened. We refused to budge. Then three elders, led by the chairman, went to talk to Bill, and nothing happened. And then we called a meeting of members only on a Sunday night, and the elders brought the recommendation that Bill's, or that, I'm sorry, that um, yeah, that Bill's, the auto mechanics' membership be revoked until such a time that he was ready to make this situation right. And the congregation voted to do that. And as a part of that, he was no longer welcomed at the church. Now, the pastor began to meet with Tom and said, Now, Tom, you need to work on forgiveness because you need to be willing, able to let this go no matter what Bill does. And so over time, they met, they get into the scripture, and the time came where Tom was able to say, I forgive. And God, as far as the money's concerned, that's in your hands. If I get it back, praise you. If I don't get it back, praise you. And he was able to let all that go. During this time, one of the elders by design was reaching out every so often to Bill. Bill, how you doing? God saying anything to you? And one day he said, yes, I need to make this right. Six months later. And so the pastor and Tom met with Bill, and Bill handed him a check for the, uh, for the price of the engine plus interest and said, will you forgive me? And Tom was able to look him in the eye and say, brother, I already did. And the pastor said, what happened here is restoration. And then it was wonderful because we had called another meeting of all the members on a Sunday night, And Bill got up and talked about his repentance and Tom got up and talked about his forgiveness and the restoration of their relationship. And then as the elders, we got up and we announced that Bill was restored to full fellowship with the church and the church just broke out in applause. That's the body of Christ functioning. And that's the power of forgiveness. Forgiveness opens the door for restoration to take place. And then, real quickly, forgiveness also reflects who God is. Forgiveness reflects who God is. Jesus says, Love your enemies and do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because He is kind, that is, God is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. When we are merciful and forgiving, we're reflecting the character of God. And then forgiveness within the body of Christ will reveal Christ and the gospel to the world around us. Remember, forgiveness is an expression of love. And so when Jesus says in John 13, a new command I give you, Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. One of the greatest examples of love in the body of Christ is forgiveness that leads to restoration of relationships. And so at this point, Jesus stops. We want to know who's going to be greatest and how do we get a better position in the kingdom of God? And God goes, well, let me tell you what I think. Show each other humility. Encourage each other so that you grow together in your relationship with me. Forgive as you have been forgiven. In speaking truth and love, restore those who fall away back into fellowship with me and back into fellowship with you. Jesus says these are some of the key building blocks to harmony and unity in the church family. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Would you just take a moment and just reflect on this question? Is there someone you need to forgive? Is there someone that you need to forgive? And, and, I, and I don't mean this unkindly, don't play games with this and say, well, I harbor this, that, and the other thing, but I I, I, I don't want to kill them. I mean, that, that's not the bar. Have you fully let go of all resentment, fully let go of any sense that this person ought to pay for what happened? You let go of any uh, thought that you are not going to let this go until the those are the kind of things. Is there someone you need to do that with? Just pause for a moment. And if there is, I encourage you, just ask the Lord right now, God, give me grace to forgive. Give me grace to forgive. And you will have taken the first step of the journey of forgiveness and possibly restoration. Father, we thank you for the wonderful gift of forgiveness you've given to us in Christ. God, I I pray that we would continue as a church family to live with humility, to live with encouragement. As necessary to extend forgiveness and to always seek to restore that which is broken. By your grace, through your love, with your mercy, God, we pray. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And together, the family of God says, Amen.